Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Gospel of Matthew series. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We, as most of you know, are teaching through the Sermon on the Mount over the summer, and this is a collection in Matthew's biography of Jesus of Nazareth, basically of all Jesus' most important teachings in one place, and it's Jesus' vision of a whole new way to be human. We left off last week in verse 26. Let's pick it up in verse 27. And Father, again, we just invite you through the teaching of your son Jesus to make your felt presence a reality by the Holy Spirit. Amen. 27, you have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna or hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Nothing controversial in there at all, right? I'm not gonna lie, we have a tough conversation ahead. But please take a deep breath and let's just work through this idea of Jesus. But first, earlier this week, I was reading the news in the morning, as I do, and I came across this fascinating article that was an interview with the supermodel, Emily somebody, I can't pronounce her name, and in it, she was defending herself from an allegation from a feminist that she was not a feminist because she rose to fame by dancing topless in a music video. And this is what she said. It really bothers me that people are so offended by breasts. That's when I realized how messed up our culture is. (laughs) When we see breasts, we don't think of beauty and femininity. We think of vulgar, over-sexualized images. To me, any expression that is empowered and is your own as a woman is feminist. If a woman decides to dress sexy, it doesn't mean she's not a feminist. We should be doing things for ourselves. If that is the woman's choice and it makes her feel good, then that's great, good for her. Then a few days later, came across this link from Bethany to a famous Christian mommy blogger, Glennon Melton, who is in the middle of a mild controversy right now. And in her blog post, she was defending herself because over her recent divorce, she got famous over a book about the healing of her marriage, ended up in Oprah Winfrey's you know, book club, all of that. And then a few years later, now she is in the middle of a divorce, and she was defending herself over her divorce, and then two months later, the announcement of a new lesbian relationship with a soccer player who is from Portland. And this is what she said. Please don't pretend to know what God thinks of us. Please think deeply about the chasm-wide difference between leaving a man and leaving God. Please remember that when a woman leaves, she just brings God with her. 
Nothing separates a woman or a family from God's love. Not death and certainly not divorce. Jesus taught us that sometimes death is necessary for there to be new life and that God loves us far more than any institution God made for us. When someone suggests otherwise, it brings shame to us, but we won't let that in. We are women who have become far too wise to believe in shame. Now, whether you agree or not, my point is these are the kinds of stories that we hear every single day. By stories, I mean these are the kinds of readings of what it means to be human and what it means to be a sexual creature right, your sexuality is a part of your humanity, that we read every time we open up our news app, and not just here like from secular society, but even at times from people to our right and our left in the church, whether it's about sexuality or the female body or beauty or marriage or divorce or whatever it is. What exactly does Jesus have to say on the subject? Well, let's work through it line by line. First off, 27, you have heard that it was said, That's what a rabbi said when he was about to quote from the Bible. And, quote, you shall not commit adultery. That is a quote from Exodus 20, 15. It is number seven of the Ten Commandments. And very similar to last week, if you were here, which was Jesus teaching on number six of the Ten Commandments, um, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. It's, It's a command that's easy to read and think, okay, like, I got that. Now, there's a lot, especially less so in our day, but even today, there's a lot more adultery than murder, in part because there's so little fallout anymore, but still, even today, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're in a semi-healthy marriage, it's easy to read this and think, yeah, no problem, I got that. But Jesus is about to kind of pull back the veil, the curtain, and show the heart of God behind that command. Have a look at 28. But I tell you, remember this was a little verbal formula used by a rabbi in Jesus' day that basically meant, hey, here's a quote from the Old Testament. Here's what you think it means. Here's what it actually means. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Some of you are thinking, wait, what? At first glance, this sounds like an impossible idea. Jesus, I live in Portland. I can't like go to new seasons and buy almond milk without being exposed to soft porn. There's just no way. (laughs) And so the temptation is either to write Jesus off as out of touch with reality or circle down the whirlpool of guilt and shame rather than take Jesus seriously as a human being and as a brilliant teacher who knows exactly what he's talking about. So just to clarify first, Jesus is not talking here about the appreciation of beauty. There are beautiful people in the world. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, it's a good thing. Genesis chapter one, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very what? good. And that word good in Hebrew is tov, and it's an aesthetic word. It has to do more with anything with the sight. To look at a beautiful woman or man and to find them attractive, that's not a sin. That's normal and healthy. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Secondly, he's not talking about the momentary flash of sexual desire that comes when you see a beautiful woman or man and they aren't wearing very many clothes. Again, that's not a sin, that's temptation. And don't confuse the two. 
A few days ago, I was working on this teaching, and I was like neck deep in a PhD dissertation on first century divorce law and Greco-Roman culture as opposed to Jewish society. <laughs> yeah, so you can only read that for so long until you start to bleed out of your left eye just a little bit. And so at one point, I like, all right, I need a 10-minute break. And so I said, let's go on a, let's go. I, I went on a prayer walk. So I, I walk, that's how off I was by that point. So I walk out of my office, and some of you have been to our office above Barista on 13, and I walk downstairs, and I walk through the lobby of Barista, and I look up, and my head is in like, you know, dissertation mode, and right there, right smack dab in between the window is a woman who fits our cultural definition of beauty to a T, with her back to me wearing very little clothing, thin strap across the back, not much more. In that moment, at a neurobiological level, against all of my will, I am overcome with sexual desire. I don't know this woman. I don't have feelings for this woman. I love my wife. I don't want to have an affair with this woman. I don't even know her name. But something, there is a flood at a neurobiological level that comes over my whole body, and there is a deep part of me, not the deepest part of me, but there is a deep part of me that wants more than anything to look not once, but twice and three times and on. That initial first glance, neurobiological flood of whatever, I'm not a scientist, that, that's not a sin. And most of you, you can't help that. Tem it's a temptation. Now, we can't control temptation, but we can influence it, am I right? By the kind of TV that we watch, which beach we go to on Savi Island, <laughs> or whatever it is, you have a say in your temptation. I think it's Martin Luther for the win in his um, kind of late Middle Ages commentary on this passage in Matthew. He writes this, we should not make the bolstering of Jesus' teaching too taut here, as if anyone who is merely tempted to look at another with lust is eternally damned. I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from making a nest in my hair or from biting off my nose. So there you have it. That's just a little 16th century humor just to like lighten the mood a bit tonight. My point is, hopefully this is a safe place, like we all know what I'm talking about. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. So what is he talking about? Well, third, he's talking about when we gaze at a woman or women, you at a man, but we'll get to that later, in context, when a man at a woman, in order to get sexual gratification from her body. That line, looks at a woman lustfully, is really slippery to translate into English, because in English, the word look has a wide semantic range. So look can mean to glance up at somebody, or it can mean to gaze, uh, when you follow somebody down the sidewalk on a hot summer day and you trace the outline of her body in your mind's eye. The English word does not distinguish between the two, the Greek does, and it's the latter that Jesus has in mind. The next word after that word look is the Greek preposition prose, which means to or toward or in order to. And then that word lust, which is a bit of a tricky word because it's a religious word. We don't, like, you don't, you know, read that outside, like the New York Times doesn't write about lust. Master of None doesn't have like a comedy sketch around lust or whatever, it's a religious word. And what we mean by that is using 
a woman or a man's body in order to get sexual gratification. So the NIV, which I love, is a bit unclear on this one. Here's a few other translations I find more helpful. The ESV, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, or Bruner, a top scholar on Matthew, every man who is looking at a woman in order to lust after her. Here's another, anyone who stares at a woman in order to fuel sexual desire for her, or Willard, anyone who looks upon a woman for the purpose of lusting for her, using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. See what Jesus is getting at. It's not that first look and that flash of sexual desire. It's not that, you can't help that. A little influence, yes, but you can't control that. It's what you do after that. It's the second look, or the third, or the fourth, or when you replay the movie in your mind's eye or imagination later, or you add to it, or you imagine yourself in a sexual encounter with that person. And rather than override your desire for lust in the language of Jesus, instead you give into it. And kind of similar to anger last week, you give into that overwhelming feeling you get and you cultivate it, you let it take root in your heart and then grow. And Jesus is saying it all starts with a second look, like something so easy and cursory and that we laugh off as no big deal. If you're a woman and you've been the victim of this kind of a look to lust, then you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. If you're a man and you've been the victim or the perpetrator of this kind of a look to lust, then you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is dealing with is a core problem in the human, question, human condition, and that is the way that men in particular objectify women. And once again, it goes both ways, but in context, Jesus is teaching the men. So we just have to like deal with it that way tonight. And the problem here is not sexual desire per se, or beauty, or the female body, or the male body. Like, those are all good things. If you don't believe me, read Genesis. Or read, if you really don't believe me, read the Song of Songs, like, like when you're ready, when you're old enough for it, all right? My son has yet to read that one. It's like, um, Dad, is this about, mm, no. Yes, it is. Um, it's an entire book in the scriptures that is, a, it is erotic, it is poetic, it is classy, it is beautiful, and it is a celebration, not only of love, but of sexuality and everything that comes with it between a man and a woman on the journey to marriage. And it's in the Bible. And it's a story that Jesus grew up hearing, read out loud at the synagogue every single year at Passover. And that was Jesus' worldview. Jesus is not some like, you know, middle age, like middle ages, celibate monk with like a serious guilt complex and who's misogynistic and beating himself. Like, that's not Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of the creator God who created you, who created your body, who created all of your body, who made it with design and meaning and purpose and art. Like, that is who Jesus is. That's not the problem. The problem is when we turn other people in particular women who fit our culture, cultural definition of beauty, into objects, into things, into tinder in the language of the app, that is kindling for the fire of our sexual desire. And it's not just the objectification of beautiful women or men, but it's also 
of those that don't fit our cultural definition of beauty. The other reality that we rarely, if ever, talk about is the devastating effect that objectification has on those who don't have that same sexual allure, who don't walk down the sidewalk and all the heads turn, who don't have that same leg up in the world that beautiful people have, who in study after study, don't take my word for it, get promoted more often, make more money, have more friends, just because they won the genetic lottery. When we objectify other people who either fit or don't fit our cultural definition of beauty, we dehumanize them in order to satisfy our sexual appetite. And in doing so, we dehumanize not only them, but ourselves. We become more animal than man or woman, meaning we become ruled by our primal base desires rather than in control of or ruling over our primal base desires, what the New Testament writers call our flesh. And this is more acute now than it's ever been. At this cultural moment, in particular in the Western world, where really for the first time in millennia, since way before even the way of Jesus, before Greece, before the Roman Empire, for the first time in the West, we no longer believe in moral knowledge. That's kind of technical language from philosophy. Moral knowledge is the idea that just as there are natural laws to the universe, gravity or E equals MC squared, there are moral and even relational laws to the universe. The way that, whether you believe in God or not, the way that it was set up to run. Over the last few hundred years, out of the Enlightenment, morality, and with it religion, has moved from the realm of knowledge, where it was for thousands of years. Whether you were a Christian or a Greek philosopher, it was in the realm of knowledge. Now that is just left for science and medicine or whatever. And moral and spiritual knowledge has been moved to the realm of opinion, feeling, bias, your cultural upbringing, your ethnic background, tradition, whatever it is, and so it's easy to write off. And what's left in the aftermath is a culture that no longer believes in good and evil or any like objective standard of good and evil. Every thriving culture in human history, East, West, Christian or not, has said, Basic, like summary, if you want to live a good life, the most important thing is to become a good person. And so the pursuit of virtue, if you want to call it that in the language of Greek philosophy, was the driving pursuit of your life, at least if you were wise. Now we live in a culture that doesn't believe anymore in right or wrong or good or evil. And so the pursuit of virtue is no longer front and center. Now it's just the pursuit of your own desires. And the lie at the heart of our culture is that if you give in to your desire, if we would say, trust your feelings or follow your heart, if you give in to your desire, that is the road to human flourishing. But every other thriving civilization in human history, again, Christian or not, has said human beings are a mixed bag of desire. We have good desires and we have lousy desires. Some desires that we want to fuel, pour gasoline on and fan the flame of those desires and step out in faith and have the courage. And other desires, if you want to call, them, call it repress those desires, fine. Jesus used the word crucify. That was even more hardcore. There are other desires that you, you need to take out like back and shoot it in the head. You need to just take, like cut that out, fight it, war, and that's what it is to be human. 
to live in this human body with this raging war inside of you. And that's the need for a teacher like Jesus of Nazareth to show you here's a, a roadmap to go forward and break free from what the New Testament called your flesh, the desires that are out of sync with human flourishing. And here is a vision of human flourishing. And here is a map to the way. All that to say we now live in a day and age where moral knowledge is all but gone. It's just an opinion. And so it's just follow your heart, follow your feelings, do what, if it feels good, do it. That is the cultural moment we're living in. And I think what Jesus has to say is more important now than ever before. Because underneath the objectification of women is an even deeper problem that Jesus here calls adultery of the heart. And what exactly is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the problem is deeper than, you know, I'm sexual and I have some desires that are kind of out of place. That's the symptom. There's a disease that is far below that. And his point, I love that language, adultery of the heart. He's saying, listen, nobody wakes up in the morning and has an affair in the afternoon, like on accident. Oh, whoops, I like missed my afternoon cup of coffee and I had a bad day. Like that just doesn't, doesn't happen. That starts if not months before, if not years before, if not decades before, if you back up the timeline before you ever get to an affair or a porn addiction or an emotional thing or whatever, or even that like, you know, gaze at the woman on the sidewalk, it starts way back here with just a second glance. That's all it is. When you look to lust and it does something to your heart where you start, if you give in to that, you start to confuse love with lust. And the two, and we forget this, the two are very different. Love, if you read the poem in 1 Corinthians 13 that is the definition of love in the New Testament, what's the first thing on the line? Love is what, anybody know? Patient. Love is patient, it's not in a rush. Lust is always in a rush. It doesn't wanna wait for the next date, much less for marriage. It wants what it wants and it wants it now. Love is faithful, it's fine to wait because it is in it for the long haul until death do us part, end quote. Lust is in it for the short term as long as the emotional high lasts, which for romance is usually about two years, for sexuality is often even shorter than that, and then I'm on to the next one. Let's chase the high from person to person, relationship to relationship, sexual encounter to sexual encounter, marriage to marriage, family to family. Love is selfless. The definition of love in the mind of Jesus is when you put the good of another ahead of your own good. When you will the good of another, whether it's your spouse or your enemy or anybody in between, you, you're like, it's the same person. Well, that <laughs> simplifies things for you. When, you. when you will the good of another, no matter the cost to you, no matter the sacrifice to you, emotional or relational or physical or financial, no matter you will the good of another ahead of your own. Lust, on the other hand, is selfish. It is narcissism in a sexual encounter. Love is an act of the will. It is not just a feeling. It is, you don't fall in love. You make a decision with the will, the most central element in your humanity, what separates a human being from an animal. You make a decision to love another human being, in the case of marriage, with your whole person, mind and body. Love, I'm sorry, lust, is what happens when that will that is core to your humanity is drowned out 
by your primal, animal-like desire for sex, by your flesh, and it's drowned out no matter the cost to other people or even to your own soul. Do you see the difference? I need to say this because our culture and everything from a Tinder app, which is everything that's wrong with the world right now, or a rom-com, or Master of None, or Fifty Shades of Grey, or whatever, is working overtime to sneak the latter in under the guise of the former. But they are worlds apart. Often when we hear in our culture, I love you, what people actually mean in the movie, or the novel, or the relationship is, I want to have sex with you, right now and I have feelings for you that might last for a long time or might last for a few months, but I, I want to act on those feelings. It's lust, it's not love. The two are very different. And the reason that Jesus is so hardcore here, and just if you forgot, wait for it, it's the next line, he's hardcore. It's because he claims, if you've read the teachings of Jesus, that the most important command in all of the Bible, it's not the one I'm teaching on right now, the most important command is what? to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all of your strength or your body. And the second is like it, it's what? To love your neighbor as yourself. And lust is the exact opposite of love. It is using another, using your neighbor, whether it's your girlfriend or an image of somebody online or your spouse or whatever, as, an, as a body for your own personal sexual gratification. And the thing is, this is a heart problem. Adultery in the heart. And the deep, what Jesus called the secret place that nobody else sees. If you have a spouse, your spouse does not see it. Your best friend does not see it. Your pastor does not see it. The software on your computer program does not see it. It's in here, in you. There's nobody to police it. It's just you and God. So next, for Jesus, what is the way out? And I just want you to notice that with Jesus, there is always a way out. In fact, as I said last week, notice, does Jesus right here, if you pay close attention to 28, does he command you not to lust? It's not a trick question. Just look down at your Bible. Does he command you not to lust? No, now that's his interpretation of the command, do not commit adultery, and I think like, it's pretty easy to get there. But he says something else. He's more like a doctor, and we just read his diagnosis of the vicious cycle that we get sucked into of the human condition. If he just said, hey, everybody, don't lust this coming week, it would be really easy to just write Jesus off. That is an impossible idea. Instead, what he does command is much more like down to earth, like in the language of what about Bob, baby steps, like just a few. Did I just date myself? That's one of my favorite movies, I'm sorry. And this is just so serious. Can we have just a little Bill Murray to lighten the mood, all right? Instead, just baby steps, just a few creative, practical steps to take toward the human flourishing that Jesus has in mind in the kingdom of God. So have a look at 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, get out your pocket knife and do your thing and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Again, if you're new to the Bible, you're like, wait, what? So um, for, for prayer time tonight, we have a knife up here and Peter, <laughs> 
Peter is a doctor, and if we have anybody, we just really take the teachings of Jesus seriously. No, Jesus is not teaching um, self-mutilation. If he was, think with me, he missed the most obvious part of the body to cut off. Like just basic math, all right? This is very similar to his teaching about leaving, if you were here last week, about leaving your goat at the altar, remember, at the temple in Jerusalem and running 80 miles back home to like solve a border dispute or whatever. It's hyperbole and it's for shock effect. But it's serious. What he's saying here is serious. And he's saying, deal drastically with lust. The first sign of it in your life, cut it out. Don't shrug it off. Don't just kind of, hey, boys will be boys. Come on, everybody's doing it. This is the thing, what, male or female. No, don't manage it. There's no what Willard calls the gospel of sin management. There's none of that in Jesus. He's saying, don't stick a Band-Aid on it and pop an Advil. You have to amputate. And if you don't amputate, if you don't cut out your eye or your arm in the hyperbole here, then you will stumble. And I love that, I love that language. Not dive head first into, not make a decision. I think, no, you will stumble, you will trip, you will fall, you will misstep into what? Into Gehenna or into hell. And again, if you were here last week, don't think, you know, torture chamber for eternity. Um, think hell on earth, whether that takes the form of addiction or the inability to actually experience sexual pleasure with a real human being or a real spouse to your right or to your left or the death of intimacy or just the crippling burden of guilt and shame or God forbid the death of a marriage or the collateral damage of an affair It's hell on earth, and some of you know that from experience. Either your own, or your mom, or your dad, or your best friend. Some of you know it all too well. And Jesus is saying, here's what we need to catch. He's saying it all starts way back here, just with a second look. You walk out the door at Barista, and you just take a second look, or a third at all, and it does something to your heart. And Jesus is calling you to a whole other way to be human. And he's not calling you male or female. This is, I think, one of, if not the most difficult of all the teachings of Jesus for men in particular to obey, and really for anybody in a city like ours to obey. But he's not calling you and me to something impossible. Difficult, as Dom said, not impossible. It's easy to write Jesus off here, but he's not. He's calling you to something. Think of our spiritual formation paradigm, if you've been around the church. Something that takes teaching, right here, that takes practice, you don't get it the first time. It takes community, you don't get it alone. That more than anything takes the Holy Spirit and happens over a very long period of time. But it is possible. The look to lust is a habit of the mind. It is not the law of gravity. And it can be broken in apprenticeship to Jesus. You can be transformed into the kind of man or woman who does not look to lust. Maybe not 100% of the time, but a lot of the time. You can become the kind of person who, like your rabbi, Jesus, is not lustful. But here's the thing, it will cost you. It will cost you. How much? An arm and a leg. No pun intended, sorry. It will cost you. Um, What are the implications of this? I think all sorts of implications for entertainment in our day and age. 
Uh, could mean that you don't go see a movie that all of your friends are seeing, all of your friends from Bridgetown are seeing. It could mean I could not like open up my computer or turn on my phone this week without reading something about Game of Thrones season, what is it, seven or whatever. Hopefully it means that you have no clue what that is like because that's porn and you have no business. Yeah, but it doesn't even remotely matter. And And I get that the arts are a gray area and there's debate and controversy. I get that. But I think as a general rule, and this is true, I think not just for millennials, but for my parents' generation as well, if there's a line, we are way past it as the church in America. So I think all sorts of implications for the arts. I think it could mean that we don't um, have an iPhone. Somebody here tonight that I just love is this handsome, good-looking, well-off young guy who's rocking this just terrible, ugly 1997 flip phone because he takes his apprenticeship to Jesus really seriously. Could mean that you don't have Wi-Fi at your house. Could mean that you're never alone in your apartment with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Could mean that you don't go to a certain beach or date a certain person or have a certain app on your phone. For me, it means that when I'm on Instagram, like the thumb is not allowed to go to the left. Was it all the way to the left is the search bar or whatever? Nothing good happens on that page. Nothing good happens. That's just a way to open myself up to temptation could mean, and honestly, this is a great step for a ton of you tonight who feel stuck and want to break free in the kingdom of God. It could mean that you sign up for 423 men or women or wives. It will cost you, I think it's like once a week, and it's openness and it's honesty. And we have literally hundreds of men and women now that have been through it and are telling story after story after story of freedom and healing. But my point is it will cost you. And not just the guys. I mean, sisters, there are implications for you as well, and I know I'm on dangerous ground here, so please show me grace. But the interesting thing about this teaching is that Jesus puts the responsibility on the men, not on the women, to overcome lust, and that's key. But what's easy to miss is that Jesus' culture was very different than ours, and that a woman had to wear a head covering and a long flowing robe to hide her beauty so that men around her were not tempted. It was very similar to, say, Saudi Arabia today, where just on Tuesday, a woman was arrested, young woman, for posting a picture of herself in a miniskirt. We don't live in Saudi Arabia or in first century Galilee. We live in one of the most secular, progressive, post-Christian, hyper-sexualized cities in the world, where immodesty is laughed at as an affront to female empowerment at best, if not full-on repression where hookup culture is the norm, where porn is something people talk openly and brag about, not hide. That's our context. And while I know that there are all sorts of, there's all sorts of debates and controversy around like the modesty conversation and it's all culture, I get that. But in the same way that we as men, men, we men as your brothers in the family have a responsibility before Jesus to overcome our flesh and not objectify you or use your body for sexual gratification. I think it's safe to say that you women have a responsibility not to flaunt your beauty or your sexuality in a way that is a temptation to your brothers or a cause of fear or insecurity or sadness to your sisters. Whether your choice of clothing just comes from a place of naivety, you don't realize the power of your body and your beauty that it has over a man, or a place of indifference, hey, this is just the style right now, deal with it, it's summer, it's hot outside, 
or your opinion about a cultural definition of modesty, or a place of intent to attract attention, if not arousal, like, I'm not here to judge your heart posture. That's between you and Jesus. All I'm saying is that you have brothers, and think of them that way, brothers, to your right and to your left who are fighting tooth and nail in a culture where it is so against the flow to honor you and to honor your body and to honor your beauty. Do not believe it for a second when people say everybody's doing it. That is a lie and it's not true. There are good men all around you, not perfect men, but good men all around you. And I'm not saying, I'm not a cult leader saying like no more wake makeup starting next week or whatever. You have to wear a muumuu or whatever. Although, like, the is kind of coming back, the Japanese thing. My wife's wearing black crane over here. It's like designer, Japanese, L.A. Like, it's kind of a thing. So if you want, like, take the chance. But I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying that it goes both ways in our context. I'm not saying, of course, hear me, that if you dress a certain way, then a man has a right to touch you or, oh, my gosh, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying we're family. The men are your brothers. The women are your sisters. God is our Father. And for us to live into Jesus' vision of human flourishing, male or female, young or old, single or not, it will cost you. So, how are we doing? Yeah, you got 10 more minutes in you to talk about divorce? Good, here we go. So, next, let's just keep going. Just, I'll make this fast. It's really interesting here. We'll talk about this more later, but there's a flow to the Sermon on the Mount, and the two are connected, lust and then to divorce. And this is actually not as in-depth as you think. But it's no surprise that the sexual liberation of the 1960s was followed by the rise of an easy divorce culture in the 70s, which was followed by the breakdown of the family in the 80s, and the rise of hookup culture in the 90s, which was followed by the redefinition of sexuality in the early 2000s, and now more and more sociologists are talking about the end of sex in Western civilization. Young Americans are having less sex than they ever have in 25 years all sorts of reasons for that, porn is the main one, but I would argue that the progressive vision of sexuality, which our city is known all around the world for, is actually the death of sex long-term. That's another teaching for Mark Sayers or somebody, but we'll get to it. My point is, there's a sequence here, there's a flow of thought from lust to divorce. Take a look again at 31. It has been said, here's a quote, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, I'm guessing most of you don't recognize that quote. It's from what to you and me is an obscure line in Deuteronomy 24, verse one. Feel free to turn there if you want really fast. Um, you don't have to, but Jesus, remember, Jesus is teaching in an oral culture, not a written culture, and most of the people in the crowd would have had all of the Torah, so Genesis to Deuteronomy, memorized. So just think about that. In our church, I'm the only one who has all of the Torah memorized. <laughs> but in Jesus' day, it would have been most everybody. And so the beauty was Jesus, or a rabbi like Jesus, could just quote one line, and everybody would call to mind the whole thing, right? So kind of same basic thing. So here's Here's the whole thing. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, okay, think about that language, 
because he finds something indecent about her, remember that, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, he gives it to her, sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, okay, now here comes the mother of all hypothetical scenarios, and her second husband dislikes her, okay, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So that's in the Bible. Um, (laughs) Now, I don't have time to piece all of this apart. It's actually beautiful what's going on right here. This isn't about, this isn't a command, it's case law, and it's not about when divorce is okay or not or God's heart behind divorce, not even about that. It's about the aftermath of divorce and how to mitigate its devastating effect on women in ancient society. So the whole point of if this goes down, here's a law about how to guard against the oppression of women. Moses is saying you need to at least give her a document that says she is free to remarry because in the ancient Near East, under Babylonian law and most ancient Near Eastern law, a man could reclaim his wife after a divorce up to five years later like she was property. So Moses is like saying, no, that's not okay. And otherwise she'll end up on the street or in prostitution or whatever. Now in Jesus' day, this is the short version, there was a raging debate over that one little phrase, something indecent. In Hebrew, it's ervat devar, and it's just as ambiguous in Hebrew as it is in English. What exactly does Moses mean by something indecent? Most rabbis in the past had said, well, it means adultery. If your wife has an affair, here's how, I guess you divorce her, but you don't dishonor her. But a generation before Jesus, there was this rock star rabbi by the name of Hillel, And he said, no, that's not what it means. What it means is for any reason at all. And he came up with this idea called an any reason divorce. And it's language that's used later in Matthew by Jesus. He literally said, you can divorce your wife for any reason. Uh, You don't like her cooking, great. Uh, You don't like her, how she looks anymore. That's just, no seriously, that's absolutely fine. You can divorce her for any reason at all. Now, this view exploded a generation before Jesus, and we think of first century Israel as this conservative religious culture, and it was, but it was also an easy divorce culture. And by Jesus' day, because of a misreading of Deuteronomy 24, only men could divorce women, which is not what Moses is saying, but that was a misreading, and they didn't even have to go to court they could just throw her out, right? And the woman had no rights. So Jesus is not down with that, as you can imagine. And he's about to weigh in on this debate around Ervat Debar in Deuteronomy. Take a look at 32. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He's saying, listen, I know the popular interpretation right now, what everybody is saying is with Hillel that you can divorce your wife for any reason at all, but I tell you, the right way to interpret Irvat Devar in Deuteronomy 24 is adultery. That's what Moses had in mind. And what he means by you make her the victim of adultery is, think it through, if you divorce your wife just because she's not pleasing to you anymore, you fell out of love, or you moved on, or you grew apart, or whatever the rationale is. In Jesus' mind, that's adultery, full on. Now, again, Jesus is dealing with a core problem in the human condition. That is the byproduct of the objectification of women, 
What is that? It's the oppression of women. Maybe that's too heavy-handed of language, but the two are connected. That's why they are right next to each other. Now, people read this passage, and it raises all sorts of questions about divorce and remarriage. At a face value reading, at least in the English translation, it sounds like Jesus is saying you can only get divorced if your spouse has an affair, and that even then, all remarriage is adultery. That's a tough pill to swallow. So people ask questions like, well, what about abuse, physical or sexual or emotional or verbal? What about that? What about desertion? Doesn't Paul say something about that in Corinthians? What about all sorts of scenarios, this one or that one? Um, Those are great questions. Tonight is not the time or the place for an in-depth teaching on divorce and remarriage. We'll actually get there. (laughs) You have that to look forward to. In um, Matthew chapter 19, which is exactly that. It's a beautiful passage. If you wanna do an in-depth study before then, there's a phenomenal book on the subject called Divorce and Remarriage in the Church by David Instone Brewer out of Cambridge University. It's under 200 pages, the popular version is. It's well-written and hands down the best resource I know on the subject. Feel free to give that a read. That said, here in Matthew 5, Jesus is not, hear me, he's not giving an in-depth, comprehensive teaching on divorce and remarriage. People get really confused when they think he is. When they think Jesus is answering the question, when can I get a divorce as a follower of Jesus? And his answer is a one line, only if your wife has an affair. Okay, that's not what's going on here. What's going on is Jesus is weighing in on a raging debate on his, in his day over how to interpret Deuteronomy 24, and he's saying that Hallel's interpretation is way off. It doesn't mean for any reason. It means adultery. And in doing so, here's, here's our point for tonight. He is beating up on both lust and an easy divorce culture that favored men over women. And that is just as relevant today as it's ever been. Do we live in an easy divorce culture? Yes, what we hate to talk about because it's not PC, but not my opinion. Go do your own research, sociological data now, all sorts of science behind it that basically says what wisdom, what people have been saying for a very long time, that men as a general rule are attracted most to beauty and women as a general rule are attracted most to status, whether that status takes the form of wealth or fame power or whatever. It's not popular to say, but there's data there. And if you think about it, as a man gets older, usually he starts to accrue more status. As a woman gets older, she usually starts to get farther from our culture's definition of beauty, which hits its peak at about 25 or something like that. So even in our egalitarian society, My point here is that divorce is far better for men than it is for women, but we don't like to talk about that because it's not PC. But Jesus is dealing with that, and he's not down with it at all. And he is calling, this is not about like law in the United States of America, this is about you as an apprentice of Jesus and me and our family. He is calling his followers to a whole other view of marriage, where marriage is not a contract that you opt in, you know, when it makes you feel good. It is a covenant, a promise that you make until death do us part. And even when there's sin, there will always be sin or failure or a mistake made. The heart posture of a follower of Jesus is not an out for divorce or what's the letter of the law. The heart posture is always repentance, 
always reconciliation, always how can I make this work? How can I honor you as a human being and honor my own humanity? That's the heart posture. So we're out of time for the night. Um, I have so many thoughts on this. Where do we go from here with the weekend? I know that was a heavy conversation, and thank you for your patience. Um, thank you for not emailing me tomorrow. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Cult leader status right there. Um, here's where I'm at. After sitting in this teaching um, for a while now uh, with my wife and our leadership, you know, the part that I am the most moved by isn't actually the call to not look to lust, although I'm convicted by that, especially in the middle of summer. And it's not even the call to love my wife until death do us part, although I am inspired by that. But what I'm most moved by is the call that is deeper still to honor women. And just to talk to the guys in the room, I think this is a call for you and me as apprentices of Jesus to honor our sisters, to honor their body, to honor their beauty, to not objectify them, and definitely not to oppress them or to leverage your cultural power in a way that is good for you but not for them. And sisters, I, I think, even though the teaching is to the men, I think it's for you as well, and I think it's a call to honor each other and a call to, not, to honor your own body and your own beauty and to not objectify yourself and to honor your brothers. And I think with the call to honor each other, both male and female, is a call to repent of all the ways that we've dishonored each other, whether that's through a divorce or a porn addiction or an inappropriate comment that you made to a girl or a man or the way you dress or whatever it is, you fill in the blank. Sexual sin isn't the be-all, end-all. Like there is a church culture where it's just like that's all, that's not right. And divorce is not the unforgivable sin. We have people in the room right now who love Jesus and apprentice under Jesus who have been through that and come out the other side. But it is sin. And when we sin, we repent. Not to get God off our back, per se, although that matters, but to step back into his way of life and onto the way to human flourishing in relationship with God, with other people, and with ourselves. The invitation of Jesus, when you read all four Gospels, over and over again, Jesus would say this one line, repent and believe the good news. That was the, invi that was the open invite, repent, or it can be translated, rethink everything from the ground up, and believe, like freight all of your life in trust onto what the good news, the story that I'm telling you. The world, every time you open up your phone in the morning, when you walk out the front door, for me in the Alphabet District or whatever, the world is telling you a story about what it means to be human and what it means to be sexual. It's telling you that you are an animal with time and chance on your side, that sex is just biological release, nothing more, that marriage is a social construct from the Byzantine era. If you're into it, fine. If not, no skin off our back. The church's teaching, really all of wisdom from thousands of years of church, of church culture, on sexuality and marriage, it's repressive at best, break free. There's no really meaning or purpose to life. So by default, really the goal, the number one goal is to be happy. 
So do whatever makes you happy in the moment. Don't really think about the long term or the person you become or who you grow or you mature into. Live and let live. Carpe diem, seize the day because you live a few decades and then it's all over and there's nothing. That's a story. The question is, does that story actually lead to human flourishing? Are the people that are living out that story behind the thin veneer of the happy life, are they actually somebody that you want to emulate? Or behind that sales pitch is their emotional pain and regret and a breach of intimacy and insecurity and alimony payments and fatherlessness and all sorts of damage. You judge for yourself. Is there a better story? Is there a better way to be human? I believe deeply that yes, there is, and it's the story that Jesus tells that the Old and the New Testaments together tell, a story where you are not an animal, you are a human being made in the image of God, all of you, male and female, nobody said that in the ancient world. Nobody said that even the modern world until really recently. All of you, male and female, made in the image of God, you're not an animal. You're made to rule over the animal kingdom and even over that base primal part of yourself. There is meaning and there is purpose to your life and who you become matters more than anything, more than the momentary fleeting feeling of this happiness or that. If you want to live a good life, become a good person and you do that through following Jesus, the embodiment of the God, come who made you from the ground up, come to put you back together again. And sexuality is not just biological release. Marriage is not just a social construct. It is when two separate autonomous human beings are fused together at the deepest level and become, in the language of Genesis, one flesh and refuse the delight and joy of that intimacy over and over again through the pleasure of sexuality in a covenant relationship until death do us part, no matter what does or no matter what does not happen. And out of that place, as you grow and mature, even when we fail, we forgive, we repent, we reconcile, we make it or we do everything we can to move forward because that is the heart. That is the way of Jesus. That's another story. I think it's a much better story. I think it's far more compelling. I think it makes way more sense of the human condition. I think it's good news. And the invitation of Jesus is to repent and to believe the good news. To repent, to believe the good news. Let's stand together and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way, a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All our resources are completely free, thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for this episode goes to Tashana from Carleton, Texas, Logan from Hinsdale, Illinois, Karen from East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, Amanda from Menominee, Wisconsin, and Seth from Spokane, Washington. Thank you all so much. To join the circle or learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org.